You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. If there were a little sound associated with that deep fake that indicated that 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 was fake and it could be verified quickly as being fake, then we'd be in a much better position. But, you know, those tools are freely available now. Deep fakes are going to be everywhere. Uh, You already see it influencing elections, like in Slovakia. There was a a deep fake scandal. It was audio as well. Uh, So, yeah, we're going to see plenty of that. And that's scary in a sense. And, And there's not a lot of clarity, too, around what social media uh, intends to do, and that's because the regulation is lagging there as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hi, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben discusses an important case in administrative law that may have profound effects on the tech industry. I've got the story of an alleged wrongful arrest based on facial recognition technology. And later in the show, my conversation with Patrick O'Reilly from CyberSaint. We're discussing privacy and mitigating election security cyber risk. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, we got some good stuff to cover here today. You want to kick things off for us? I'm going to talk about a case about the regulation of herring fishermen in New Jersey and Rhode Island. And no, you are not on the wrong podcast channel. (laughs) Uh, I am also going to bore you with some administrative law. And uh, way, way to sell it, Ben. Way I know to sell my it. co-host uh, <laughs> rolled his eyes when I when I said that this morning, but okay. I think it's critically important to cover because it has big impl- uh, implications, not just for the tech industry, but really throughout the corporate world and and really with policy in general. Okay. So the case, uh, the details really don't matter. Basically, some herring fishermen in New Jersey and Rhode Island have dueling cases against a couple of administrative federal agencies saying that they exceeded their statutory authority in promulgating regulations against them. Okay. I have to admit, I know absolutely nothing about herring or being a fisherman or really anything related to the actual subject, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, The cases have made their way up to the United States Supreme Court, and legal experts are predicting that this case could be a referendum on a longstanding judicial doctrine called Chevron deference. And I've referenced this a few times on this podcast I think it's important to kind of clarify what it is, 
how long it's been around and why it's important um, for people who are not administrative law nerds. Okay. So the Administrative Procedure Act grants power to administrative agencies. And basically it says when Congress passes any law, they can delegate some type of authority to a federal agency and the agency can promulgate regulations as long as those regulations are not arbitrary or capricious or otherwise in violation of the law. Okay. And the Supreme Court uh, had a difficult time figuring out exactly how much power congressional or uh, federal agencies had in promulgating those regulations. And they came up with this two-step test in a 1984 case called Chevron v. Natural uh, Resources Defense Council. Hmm. And the two-part test is as follows. First, if the congressional intent is clear, the agency must abide by that intent. If the intent is unclear, if there's any ambiguity, then the agency has deference to interpret the law in a way that makes sense, in a way that's not arbitrary or capricious. Mm. So it gives a lot of power to uh, agencies relative to who really should be making these decisions, which is members of Congress. Let me interrupt you here. Please do, because I can tell people are already snoring. So 1984 is when that happened. What are the origins of this? How far back does it go? Basically, the modern administrative state started post-World War II. The Administrative Procedure Hmm. Act was in the 1940s. Okay. Congress used to just better be able to, and I'll kind of explain the reasons for this, but Congress used to be better at laying out explicit instructions uh, for regulations in their statutes. Mm. Over time, those instructions got a little bit less specific for a number of reasons. Mm. I think first and foremost is they, uh, you may have met members of Congress, uh, so you might understand that they're not always subject matter experts, and it might be easier for them to defer to agency experts to promulgate these policies than it is for them to get into the weeds themselves. Ah, yeah. When we're talking about major policy issues, yes, Congress should make decisions about top-line tax rates and abortion. Right. But when it comes to how much of some obscure chemical can be allowed in motor oil or whatever, right, right. like, your average member of Congress is not going to be chemist who's going to be able to have expertise in that. So. Okay. Originally, this was a doctrine that was supported by both the right and the left in the 1980s. Uh, Conservative Justice Scalia was actually a a big advocate um, when it first came out of Chevron deference because it was taking the matter of interpretation of these statutes outside of the judicial branch into the executive branch. Hmm. There's been this major reconsideration. Basically, what happened is Congress had passed a lot of laws that said very vague things like the air should be clean. And <laughs> right, <laughs> the EPA ran with that and started to say, okay, well, we interpret the air should be clean to mean uh, we're going to regulate miles per gallon in uh, X class of vehicles. It has to be between 25 and 35 miles a gallon. Oh, I see. Uh, something like that. Right. Uh, so all of these conservatives started to get outraged that these unelected bureaucrats have all of this deference to make policy without clear congressional uh, intent. So this has gotten back up to the Supreme Court. Justice Gorsuch, the first Donald Trump appointee, basically his lifelong project has been to do away with Chevron deference. He's been Mm. writing about it for years. Okay. Uh, So he and I think at least three of his colleagues are very keen on getting rid of this doctrine. Uh, On the other side of it are, I think, a lot of progressives who 
even when they are not uh, in power in the executive branch, I think trust kind of the career people at these agencies to make regulations. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some ambivalence among the moderate faction on the Supreme Court about doing away with this long-term doctrine that we've kind of relied on for so long. Is this a partisan interpretation of how well the status quo is working? I think that's exactly what it is. Do most people... Now, there are a few law nerds out there. I get it. Right. Do most people actually care who make administrative law decisions? No. You're looking for outcomes. Right. If you're Chevron, you know, you make whatever legal argument you need to make. You want to be able to produce your products more cheaply and increase your profit margins. Right. So, yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, partisanship involved in this. But it is a question that we need to settle. And I think it has a lot of implications because so many of the stories we talk about on this podcast is the FTC interpreting some act from the 1980s relating to stored communications or something like that, or uh, an interpretation of HIPAA uh, that relates to health data, or an interpretation of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act made in uh, the Department of Justice. And without Chevron deference, these agencies would basically be disempowered to make any of those determinations. Mm. There would be a million different court cases saying congressional intent was not clear here, and without Chevron deference, the agency doesn't have the authority to promulgate regulations at all, uh, and therefore, this regulation will not stand. It's going to be reversed. Uh, And I think that could have a really detrimental outcome. Now, what critics of Chevron would say is great. Let's punt it back to Congress. Congress should be the one who actually formulates the policy. Mm-hmm. They can study the issue. They can make themselves experts. They can make these key decisions instead of unelected bureaucrats. I think in the areas we talk about, law and policy of privacy surveillance, it brings to the forefront the importance of these fast-moving modern issues where Congress is not well-situated to act quickly. Not to dwell on the fact that they're overly partisan and we're uh, in a polarized Congress. We have a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. But even just the rules of the Senate where you have to have unanimous consent to even vote on considering a piece of legislation. And if you don't get that, then there are all these time-sucking tools that the minority can use to grind the gears. So. I object. Okay, I'll file cloture. Great, that's 30 hours. Well, we don't want to stick around here for 30 hours. Fine, we'll have the vote on Monday. Like, all of that adds up, and Congress is just not able to pass many pieces of legislation. There's no way they could keep up with the latest developments in AI, for example. Right. Uh, If something needed to be done uh, in light of the introduction of some type of new technology. So I just think the consequences of these cases that are coming up and they're going to be decided uh, sometime in June are really profound for for this industry and I think for our listeners. And I know administrative law can be boring, but I think there are so many examples, and we'll mention it all the time, of agencies using the deference they're given under Chevron to promulgate regulations or to seek enforcement actions. And if Chevron is reversed, then, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, so I'll I'll give you a window into my real-time thinking here, uh, as frightening as that may be. Um, It seems to me that if we get rid of this and we toss it all back to Congress for clarification, well, there's one thing we know about Congress is that 
they are dysfunctional. They don't get anything done right now. That is correct. But I suppose for a large number of people in this particular case, that would be a feature, not a bug. They want to introduce chaos to the regulatory uh, framework, right? I think that's exactly right. And this is just my personal opinion. You, many people disagree with this, including many Supreme Court justices. So, right, right. <laughs> uh, I just think you have to be careful what you wish for. Yeah. You may not generally like regulations, but when a president of your party is in power and wants to shape the administrative state in a way that helps effectuate that president's policies, you don't want them to be stymied by an avalanche of court cases saying this hasn't been explicitly authorized. The Clean Air Act of 1973 doesn't, you know, directly address the use of this one environmental toxin. Mm-hmm. So you have to go back to Congress, amend the law, and have Congress say that they're allowed to regulate that toxin. Yeah. It's just with the, you, the, with the Congress we have, it's not going to be practical. So even if you are skeptical of regulations generally, and there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical of regulations, I'm sure a lot of our listeners' regulations are just annoying things. Yeah. Uh, You know, you work in compliance, and this is just stuff you have to work with every day. But I think the alternative in these circumstances is worse, uh, just from a practical standpoint. If we had a more properly functioning legislature, you think of like a state legislature, Mm. they can just plow through bills. I mean, I follow the Maryland General Assembly. By the end of the session, they're voting on hundreds of bills per day. Mm -hmm. I think you could keep pace at least reasonably in a legislature that was that effective. But you can't have a molasses Congress and no agency deference. That is just, in my mind, a recipe for disaster. Even if you're skeptical of regulation, uh, generally in the technology field, I just think that's going to end up hurting the industry. Uh, it's going to cause a lot of unnecessary uncertainty for stakeholders. It reminds me of, you know, I, I heard a lot of uh, commentators uh, when uh, Roe v. Wade got overturned that it was the dog catching the car, you know, and, and what now? And And this strikes me as possibly being one of those things where, okay, the Supreme Court rules this way, the dog caught the car, now what? Yeah, I mean, I don't even want to deign to think about how many times Chevron has been referenced in cases, basically on every single subject you could possibly think of. Uh, We're talking about hundreds of thousands of times. And if all of those cases are null and void, from legal analysts I've read, and I posted an op-ed actually from a conservative writer, Mm. um, Ramesh Panuru, who's a contributing uh, columnist, and this will be in the show notes. Okay. I think there might be a way for the moderate justices to weasel their way out of this through some kind of secondary or tertiary issue so they don't have to decide the fundamental Chevron question. But that's certainly not a guarantee. And uh, if this is a full frontal attack on Chevron, Chevron as it could be, then I think the legal landscape is going to be permanently changed in ways that we just uh, can't even think about, conceptualize, or recognize right now. Is it all or nothing? I mean, is is there is there some middle ground that we could meet on here? With I guess that would require uh, action from Congress. Yeah, it would require action from Congress. Congress could pass something really in the realm of Chevron deference, saying we grant the agency deference to make regulation on X, Y, and Z subject. I don't think this particular Congress would do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, especially since you're not sure who you're giving the keys to and drafting those regulations. Right. And there are a lot of ideological, uh, there's a lot of ideological opposition to Chevron generally. So just codifying a version of Chevron in a statute is not going to be easy. I mean, to me, I know this sounds silly. I think Chevron is the compromise. I mean, Hmm. it was introduced as a practical solution to a problem of what happens when Congress clearly wants to do something, but it's not exactly clear how far they're willing to go. There aren't a lot of great solutions to that dilemma. Uh, Certainly, judges making that policy seems to be a worse outcome to me than executive agencies with career folks who have been there for years and who have subject matter expertise. Yeah. I think that's the best of what are probably a bunch of bad options. It strikes me as being um, kind of like opt-in versus opt-out. So my understanding of Chevron, as you've described it, is if Congress is not specific, then the uh, regulatory agencies have the leeway to interpret and apply as they see fit. That's correct. What if you flipped that upside down and said, you know, rather than, I don't know if you call that opt-in or opt-out, whichever, but you see where I'm going here, where if you say, uh, if there's ambiguity, then you must go to Congress for clarity. And I don't know if there was some way you could streamline that or fast track it or whatever. I mean, I guess that's the, that's what we're talking about here, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess what you could do is pass a new type of administrative law statute that says if an agency wants to interpret a statute in a certain way, mm-hmm. it has to go back to Congress. Maybe there's a motion that's not subject to the filibuster. Right. We have some mechanisms for that. There's something called the Congressional Review Act where the House and Senate, without the threat of a filibuster, can vote to overturn a presidential regulation. Um that can be vetoed. So it's mostly pointless, except (laughs) at the end of uh, the Obama administration, they tried to put in a lot of last-minute regulations. Trump comes into office with a Republican Congress. They plow through the Congressional Review Act and overturn all these Obama-era regulations. Because there's a time limit you have to abide by. I see. Could you have a Chevron committee, a congressional committee that is the... I guess I'm thinking of a way to short-circuit it having to go to the full Congress for little nitpicky stuff, like like you were saying, you know, like what percentage of uh, some chemical are we allowed in the drinking water? You know, like Congress doesn't need to be in part of that, but if 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 the experts could go to a committee at Congress and say, this is what we're thinking, are you okay with this? And have it be a fast-trackable kind of thing, could that sort of thing be... A compromise. Yeah, but wouldn't you rather have it go to the agency that has expertise in this? Like, I'd rather the EPA make that decision than the select committee on administrative law interpretations from Congress featuring Bernie Sanders and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, like, but I guess I guess what I'm saying is that clearly there is a desire here to have some kind of escape valve from what is perceived as overreach by these agencies, Right. So, in your opinion, what is the current escape from that sort of overreach that is already in play that, uh, you know, Congress has at its disposal? I think it's the Congressional Review Act. Mm -hmm. uh, And even though that gets, ends up getting vetoed by a president, I mean, theoretically, you could override that veto with a two-thirds majority. Mm -hmm. So, you basically have a situation where 
Congress couldn't do something so ridiculous that, you know, if it were opposed by two-thirds of both the House and the Senate, they couldn't overturn it. Okay. Uh, It's not a perfect solution because still you could have an administrative agency taking an action that doesn't have majority support and still Mm -hmm. get away with it. But I think it's, um, you know, better than all of the available alternatives. Okay. It's hard to imagine... uh, It's hard to imagine this playing out. What, What sort of timeline are we on here? These decisions, and these are twin decisions, will come out in June. Uh, so we'll re- we'll, we will revisit it then, and I think you'll start to see more scholarship on how this affects the tech industry and big data and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, so we only have a few months on this one. All right. Stay tuned. <laughs> we'll be here for you. For those of you who have slept through this segment, I swear we're going to get to something more interesting. Well, uh, let's uh, switch to my story here. Um, this is a story from The Guardian. Uh, and this is about an individual. His name is uh, Harvey Murphy Jr. He is 61 years old, and he is suing Macy's uh, and the parent company of Sunglass Hut, which uh, if anyone's been to a mall, you're familiar with Sunglass. And honestly, who has recently? <laughs> so uh, Sunglass Hut's parent company is called Isilor Luxotica. And he is suing them for wrongful arrest due to misidentification by facial recognition technology. So Mr. Murphy was wrongly accused of an armed robbery at a Houston-area sunglasses hut in January of 2022. So Houston, Texas. Mr. Murphy was living in California at the time of said robbery in Houston, Texas. An employee of Sunglass Hut, one of their security employees, used facial recognition technology to identify Mr. Murphy as the culprit. And that employee reached out to the police and said, good news, we've identified the culprit. (laughs) And the police followed this lead. They arrested... Well, actually... um, Mr. Murphy came back to Texas. Evidently, he uh, had business in Texas. He, I believe he was in Texas um, getting his driver's license renewed. So he goes to the DMV. He gets flagged for having an arrest warrant out for him because of this identification of, the, of being the alleged uh, culprit here of the uh, armed robbery. Uh, he gets arrested. He gets put in jail. Uh, He's in jail for 10 days. While he is in jail, he is allegedly beaten and raped by some of his fellow inmates. Eventually, uh, he's cleared of the charges. The facial recognition simply got it wrong. It was mistaken. After his life was ruined. After his life was ruined is is the case that he uh, he and his attorneys are certainly making here. Um, So he's suing. Let me point out something here. Uh, let me admit to my own bias here or my own preconceived notion because I think it, it, it helps inform the story. The twist is coming, folks. This is like the end of season one of The Good Place. <laughs> so as I was reading this story and I was imagining everything happening in my mind uh, and I was imagining Harvey Murphy Jr., in my mind... I had him pegged as being a black man. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's white. First time this has happened to a white guy. This is the first time, the first known wrongful arrest of a white man 
due to facial recognition failure here in the U.S. So I don't know what that says about me. I don't know what that says about, I, I think it does speak to the fact that this is the first case of a white man. And you and I have talked endlessly about how facial recognition software gets it wrong much more frequently when it comes to people of color and women. And there's been these high-profile instances. There was a man in Michigan who I think was falsely accused of a robbery who was harassed by law enforcement, and his life was basically ruined. Right. So it has happened to many people of color. I hate to say this, but maybe more people will pay attention when it's not a person of color. Yeah. And that's the tragedy of all of this, is that maybe it resonates more because you know, more white people actually pay attention to it for once. So there's there's a couple of things I want to unpack here with you. So uh, Mr. Murphy is uh, seeking $10 million in damages. Um, Macy's and uh, Sunglass Hut's parent company have not yet commented on the lawsuit. Before I dig in with some questions for you, Ben, uh, what's your reaction here? I mean, first of all, when I first started reading the story, I was surprised when I found out that he was white. And I think that's a really interesting element here. Yeah. Uh, It does speak a lot to our own biases. Right. I mean, this is an absolute siren. Uh, We've had many of these instances in the past, but I think this is just another example of how we need to be very careful in how we use facial recognition technology. This is on the severe end of the consequences that can stem from misidentification. Yeah. Um, But the fact that something like this happened to an innocent man is unacceptable. And if any type of technology, even if the circumstances are isolated, and even if we can fully admit that facial recognition technology is useful in, in lots of different circumstances, as long as we're having problems like this, I'm very skeptical of widespread use of this technology in both the public and private sectors. And I think we have to be uh, until we can be sure that this type of thing is rooted out. The consequences here or the, the, what Mr. Murphy suffered here, what he's alleging that he suffered is, of course, horrific. Help me understand... To what degree is that responsibility on the folks who run the jail that he was in? And to what degree is that the responsibility of the people who wrongly assigned this crime to him? I think they can all be held jointly and severably liable uh, for their own role in uh, what happened to this individual. So I think... If the jail was negligent in some way, they can be held liable in civil court. But I also think that doesn't preclude uh, the companies, including the parent company of the Sunglasses Hut, if they improperly use this data, and that's found to be true in a court of law. uh, Or, um, you know, you could sue the law enforcement agency uh, that did the misidentification. I think all of those entities... um, could potentially be sued. And I think this, it probably should be in one proceeding. I think this plaintiff could at least potentially collect money from all of them. Um, But certainly this was spurred on by that initial false identification. So if you're looking morally, who's at fault? Everybody. Uh, But I think special responsibility falls on the fact that uh, he was wrongly accused of of this armed robbery to begin with. Were he not beaten and raped in prison, would he have any sort of case? 
Yes. Now, he might not be able to seek $10 million in damages. Right. uh, Because he has physical uh, injuries that are directly traceable to this incident. Okay. Uh, There would still be other damages that uh, he could plead for in one of these cases. So, it could be uh, severe emotional distress. False imprisonment in and of itself is a tort. So, you can seek damages for it. I guess what I'm getting at here is like, you know, let's say that... uh you know, I'm walking along minding my own business. I go to renew my driver's license and they tell me that there's a a warrant out for my arrest. And it turns out I'm the spitting image of somebody who held up the local sunglasses hut. And facial recognition has nothing to do with it, right? It was just a description. Somebody, you know, did a a, a, a drawing. <laughs> that sketch artist A sketch drawing. artist, yeah. right. A sketch artist drawing. So let's take the technology out of it. It seems to me like... It's not unreasonable for me to be detained if I were a suspect of a violent crime. Am I wrong there? You're not wrong. I think it's so hard to take the technology out of it because everything is very automated. So, like, in that instance, there's a lot of chances for humans to review each step of the process. Mm -hmm. Like, is this a reliable sketch? Does this person really look like the individual in the sketch? People are wrongfully detained all the time. Yeah. Uh, It does happen without the use of technology. I think the reason this is a technology story is the scale of it. If all of these companies are using facial recognition and something that used to require lots of law enforcement resources, personnel, now only requires you paying a monthly fee to a security company to have cameras up and uh, capture images that can be used to track people down, then it's just something that's happening at a much larger scale. And I think that's why this is an apocryphal story. Yeah. And I guess maybe one of the things that could come out of this is that organizations, law enforcement, all the people involved with this come to the conclusion that Facial recognition on its own is not enough to proceed. Right. I mean, you could have some type of requirement that facial recognition alone cannot be the sole grounds for an arrest or a prosecution. Mm -hmm. You have to have some independently verifiable evidence. I think it's possible that we start to see jurisdictions come up with that type of policy. Mm. Because I don't think people want to do away with facial uh, recognition technology generally because of how useful it is, yeah. even as a crime-fighting tool. Uh, but I do think the more we see stories like this, the more we're going to see this push for regulation and push back against what we have seen over the past several years, which is just facial recognition everywhere, right. when you're most expecting it and when you're least expecting it. Yeah. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, And of course, we would love to hear from you if there's something you would like us to consider for the show. Or if you have any feedback for us, you can send us an email. It's caveat at n2k.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. 
With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Patrick O'Reilly. He is from uh, Cyber Saint. Uh, and we're discussing privacy and the mitigation of election security cyber risk. Here's our conversation. We stand with uh, a certain amount of uncertainty, but we also have some guidance from previous elections. So we know some things and and we don't know some other things. Uh, so there's, I think, a fair amount of unpredictability baked in because of some of the advances uh, around what you just indicated, deepfake technology. Regulation kind of lagging what uh, social media is going to do with things like that. But around the issue of the voter rolls and the databases therein and the voting software, I think we have a little bit more clarity. Again, you know, we we mentioned that we alluded to this story that broke uh, this morning as you and I are recording this, that there were some deep fakes uh, that were pretending to be President Biden uh, robocalling folks and telling them to hold off on their votes. Uh, is that the shape of things to come here? Yeah, we're going to see a fair amount of that. Um, and it's going to be uh, a little bit chaotic uh, because there really aren't a great deal of protections in place. If you look at uh, what what our federal government is proposing, what the G7 is proposing, uh, what China is proposing around regulating AI, around watermarking, for example, which would be quite helpful. You know, if if there were a little sound associated with that deep fake that indicated that 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 was fake and it could be verified quickly as being fake, then we'd be in a much better position. But, you know, those tools are freely available now. Deep fakes are going to be everywhere. Uh, you already see it influencing elections, like in Slovakia. There was a, a deep fake scandal. It was audio as well. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to see plenty of that. And that's scary in a sense. And And there's not a lot of clarity, too, around what social media uh, intends to do. And that's because the regulation is lagging there as well. Where do we stand in terms of regulation from the states themselves? I mean, as we know, you know, elections are are run at the state level here in the U.S. Um, what's the movement been there in terms of trying to tamp down on these sorts of things? Well, I think it's lagging there as well. I think there's some pretty solid uh, rulemaking at the state level around voter rolls, the softwares that are used uh, to uh, to actually uh, allow people to vote. Uh, you know, there's you know, well, I was looking at some of that recently, and I was actually surprised at the extent to which software testing is performed on voting systems, um, because you know, in the procurement process for federal uh, around other kinds of softwares. It, it, there's no extensive testing cycle necessarily. Uh, and they're just getting some software bill of, bill of materials uh, protections in place as well at the federal level. So, uh, you know, in some sense, the states are pretty good uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, protecting voter rolls, databases, you know, uh, the 
registry of motor vehicles and the death records, that's there's a lot of protection in place there. Uh, and we haven't, you know, historically seen a lot of fraud in there. That was the big mm. <laughs> controversy, yeah. right? Uh, that got Chris Krebs sort of fired, but he's right. You know, there isn't a great deal of uh, fraud uh, on that scale. And the voting machines are fairly secure and they do have uh, state regulations and a lot of resources from CISA around uh, protection protection of those systems. I haven't seen a lot yet on, on what's being done with respect to, you know, telephone fraud, but everyone's got laws around that as well. That doesn't mean it's going to stop it. You know, the, the real issue is this deep fake stuff. And I think the feds are out ahead of most of the states, actually. Yeah. What's your take on, on the roles that the various agencies have to play? I mean, you mentioned, you know, CISA being involved here. Obviously, we've got the FBI takes an active role in uh, election integrity. In terms of them being in their various lanes, do, do you have thoughts there? Um, no, I mean, they're in their lanes in a sense, but they've, you know, when you, when you go through what they've been talking about, they're trying to get greater coordination through, you know, the sector risk management agencies. Um, you know, FBI works in tandem with, uh, CISA and DHS, uh, on certain things, but they really have separate, you know, uh, functions. CISA is really about information sharing and the FBI is about chasing down bad actors more or less, mm. um, you know, and, and, and be, and logging, you know, uh, crimes. Um, CISA is more around making sure that they're on top of everything that happens across the various sectors. They're more active in election security. Uh, FBI comes in when there's evidence that, you know, something has gone amiss. Right. So I think they're doing their best, not that they don't step on each other's toes. They, they are highly collaborative though. When you speak to officials, you know, they work with each other very closely on these things. What about misinformation? You know, I, I think in the time between the last election and this one, you know, it seems to me that the the focus was on more of the technical side of things last round. It, uh, we're talking about a presidential election, but so much has happened since then. It's, um, it, it doesn't seem like even the same ballgame to me. No. Well, it's not. It's you're right. It isn't the same ball game. Um, it's 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 the old ball game with a lot of new uh, powerful tools, uh, and, and and those tools are going to wind up in in the wrong hands inevitably. Um, so we're going to see plenty of misinformation, plenty of disinformation, and it's going to be strategic. And it's we're going to see it, you know, pushed out across the so social media platforms. We're going to see, um, you know, the, one of the nightmare scenarios is that you get kind of a Cambridge Analytica style breach in tandem with disinformation campaign, right? So you get micro-targeting and dis disinformation. A reporter asked me that last week and I said, my, that's my real fear is that they get all the demographic information of a good segment of people and then they target campaigns at them. Um, you know, and, you know, there's been some studies that say, you know, that misinformation, uh, disinformation, you know, they, they drive more hits, you know, uh, you know, on the social media platforms than legitimate information when they're out there. So they're more viral in a sense, uh, you know, fiction, you can always with fictional things, you can always, you know, take liberty, right. With, with the truth and really juice up the sensationalism of it all. Um, so we're going to see it and it's not going to be pretty. Um, and it's going to be an absolute fight you know, food fight across the officials that are dragged into it, the social media platforms, uh, the, the electorate, 
I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of activity in this area. To what degree do you think the social media platforms bear responsibility for helping to put a limit on these sorts of things? I'm in tech and I make software and I would, I lean heavily on the side that technology should be uh, very transparent about this stuff, uh, you know, and you know, when you look at regulatory cycles historically and what it takes, right, for regulators to actually get an agreed upon um, set of requirements for technology or for a sector, it takes time and it takes a lot of cooperation and coordination. You know, it took the energy industry years to come to like Eric SIP, for example. Financial, uh, you know, took took years uh, to get protections in place. Sarbanes-Oxley was in development for a long time and, and wound up shaping, um, you know, financial reporting for, you know, a generation. We're into lots of cycles like that. Cyber risk management is one of them. The SEC just came out with rulemaking, but it, it was years in the making. Now, the technologists, the social media platforms have a very clear set of incentives uh, to, uh, you know, remain under voluntary guidance with some of this and to give all sorts of maybe, you know, uh, less than uh, robust assurances that they're going to do what it takes. But they have every incentive to not do it, right? <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, that's usually when regulation is called for. So I, I really do wish that the social media platforms were more transparent about this. I, I Because... They're going to really force the hand of the government to do something. And, it, you know, unfortunately, it may take something like an Enron, right? That's what generated Sarbanes-Oxley. You know, um, the SEC stuff sped up after SolarWinds, right? So mm. what, will, what will it take after, you know, what is it going to take? Is it going to be this election cycle that's going to really force legislators to, you know, not wait anymore for good faith, you know, uh, testimonies? Uh, and and sort of general counsel showing up and saying all the right things, but it's basically boilerplate. Um, so you know, I, I think we're going to see, and and I don't think the social media platforms have done nearly enough. You know, Ben and I talk about uh, how it's hard to not take a cynical approach when when you look at the reality of our non-functioning Congress here, and one of the things that we've um, you know, joked about, I I suppose, in kind of a gallows humor kind of way, is that it's unlikely for anything to happen until it affects them. And sort of to your point, I wonder if somebody monkeying with the election, which would affect them, could be the thing that kicks them into gear. The, The part of me is hopeful that that could happen. Part of me is cynical that they wouldn't want to shut anything down because they wouldn't want to take away the ability to use those techniques. Absolutely. You know, and I think it cuts both ways. And I share your uh, jaded, uh, you know, eye on this. Uh, You know, I, I've been, you know, I work in this space and I see the back and forth and I see, I see all the parties who have skin in the game, but rarely does anyone talk about misaligned incentives. And that's really what we're dealing with, you know, and, you know, it takes someone like Gary Gensler at the SEC to sort of frame this properly. You know, you look at regulation across uh, other sectors and, you know, HHS came out recently and said something like, we're going to be a lot more stern going forward with respect to hospitals because of device proliferation, right? And, Mm. you know, that makes perfect sense. They're going to have to because patient records are flying around in the ether. 
there, you know, there aren't uh, necessarily all the uh, encryption protocols you need on such things. And devices are kind of made to do one thing, but there might be multiple types of information pushed through them. You're going to have to have some, some new regulation in this space. And immediately, the American Hospital Association steps up and starts complaining. It's under voluntary guidance. It's under their purview, and they don't want anyone doing anything. You saw the same thing from the American Petroleum Institute when the colonial hack occurred. You know, there may be an incentive. And, and right now, the Congress on the Republican side of the House is trying to unwind the SEC's authority to actually regulate, uh, you know, uh, companies through the 10K, which mm-hmm. is, a, you know, really scary idea that you can't have any regulation when it comes to this kind of thing. So I do think there are misaligned incentives, and I do think that the legislative paralysis, um, you know, does not it does not bode well for this in the in the near future. But something is going to happen, and it's going to force the hand of of legislators. It's just a question of what the you know mix will be after the election cycle, because one could imagine, and this is one of the big fears globally is that a drift towards a more authoritarian uh, you know, uh, stance is, is going to result in you know, less and less checks on things, right? Um, so mm-hmm. hopefully you know, that the, the more you know, democracy-focused institutions are, are going to remain, you know, or at least have a foothold on some of this stuff because it's getting, it's getting pretty alarming. If I could bring it back home for you, I mean, the work that you and your colleagues there at CyberSaint are doing, um, what is your part to play? And, you know, you and and folks who are, you know, fighting the good type of fight that you all are fighting there, you know, um, where does that fit in? Yeah, well, we fit in in an interesting way. You know, we we help organizations uh, understand their risk posture uh, with respect to you know technology or cyber, um, and we do it in a very data driven way. Uh, you know, up till very recently, most large corporations had these sprawling practices around governance, risk, and compliance. Um, you know, technology has not often made it into the boardroom discussion. So, in other words. What do we do? You know, and you can see it sort of in the solar winds uh, indictment that there was a huge disconnect between the governance function, right, and the information security function, and that's just historical. That's how it's grown up. Uh, you know, cyber cyber comes out of IT. IT has generally been the purview of you know some monk like practitioners who sit in rooms with blinking devices, right? And <laughs> the business side, the business side has often been like. Keep those lunatics out of the room, you know, and that's just a glib way of saying it. But there is this divide historically in very large corporations and even in small and medium sized ones. We really help bridge that divide. We really help executives get get an understanding of the financial impacts of what they're doing with respect to cyber. What do you think? Man, this stuff keeps you up at night, doesn't it? I mean, there are just a lot of recipes for disaster. You have all of these different election systems. Um, most of them have proven to be extremely secure, which is good. Yeah. Uh, but then you have the propagation of misinformation. You have deep fakes, robocalls. 
Uh, well, as you and I are recording this, I mean, just today there was the news breaking that uh, I was in New Hampshire. Yep. That uh, I was just going to mention that. Yeah, go ahead. So somebody, it hasn't been identified uh, who actually made this happen, uh, sent out a robocall purportedly to be from Joe Biden, but it's really created through artificial intelligence, right. telling people not to vote in the Democratic primary. Uh, now, it's a complicated primary there. Joe Biden actually isn't on the ballot. Um, for reasons I won't get into. Yeah. Uh, but there's a write-in campaign so that he'll win that primary. Okay. And this was telling people to not write his name in, purportedly being from Joe Biden. Yeah. I listened to it. It's really convincing. Like, Well, he uses the word malarkey, so he who does. Else could it has it be? to be him. <laughs> like, they're getting so much better at capturing his voice. Even then, like, a year ago, I just, you put more data in there, especially... You know, anybody can do 1990s Joe Biden, but right, like right. now we have enough <laughs> input of, you know, early 80s Joe Biden that it just sounds very realistic. Yeah. All right. Well, again, uh, our thanks to Patrick O'Reilly from CyberSaint for joining us. We really do appreciate him taking the time and sharing his expertise. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. The show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.